You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to Understanding Sin and Evil. Before I begin, I would like to thank all my listeners. I appreciate all of you, and especially those who leave comments and questions on my site. I just caught up responding to your comments, and I am continually impressed by my listeners. I appreciate your thoughtfulness, your openness, and your really intelligent comments and questions. It's a pleasure to answer them. Keep them coming. Now back to our business, Blial. In this episode, we'll discuss the other major rule document from Qumran that features Blial, the Damascus document. As we discuss Blial in the Damascus document, we're going to note the differences from Blial as he's portrayed in the community rule, which is what we discussed in the last episode. Now, in general, there are many differences between the community rule and the Damascus document, both in terms of their attitude to non-members, in terms of their attitude to sin, and even in terms of the actual rules that they include. Some scholars see them as rule books for different parts of the community. So those who identify the Dead Sea community as some type of a scene as described by Josephus, which I personally don't exactly, uh, say that the Damascus document, which mentions having wives or having a wife, is for the scenes in town that Josephus mentions, while the community rule, which simply does not mention women or marriage, is for those who have gone out to the desert, especially essentially those who are at Qumran itself. So they wouldn't have wives. Other scholars, and this seems right to me, see the two documents as reflecting different stages in the development of the sect. So there's a stage where they have a more benevolent attitude towards non-members, for example. One thing that both rule books have in common, though, is that their introductions reflect a belief in free will despite the deterministic overtones that are a basic part of the sect's theology. So this belief in free will is actually explicit in the Damascus document, but I'm going to discuss that in more depth when we talk about ideas of the evil inclination later in this series. Right now, we're still on demons. For now, let's see how the character Blial is used, as it were, by the Damascus document. What function does Blial fulfill here as opposed to his function in the community rule? The name Blial appears five times in the Damascus document. The first two of these are in a passage in column four, lines 12 to 19, where Blial is described as free to act against Israel in the present age. And it's essentially explaining how the present age is the dominion of Blial, Memshalet Blial. And I'm reading now, starting from line 12. But during all those years, meaning the present era, Blial will be set free among Israel, as God spoke through the hand of the prophet Yeshayahu, son of Amots, saying, Fear and a pit and a snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the land. This is a quote of uh, Isaiah twenty four seventeen. Its interpretation concerns the three traps of Blial, of which Levi, the son of Jacob, said. Now, this is referring to the Testament of Levi, which we actually have partially in Aramaic and in Greek. So going back, its interpretation concerns the three traps of Blial, of which Levi, the son of Jacob, said that he, Blial, entrapped Israel with them. And he made, literally placed them, 
the traps before them, Israel, as if they were three types of righteousness. Again, he placed the traps before Israel as if they were three types of righteousness. So what are the three traps of Blial? It's some kind of sin which Blial tricked Israel into thinking is righteousness. Now I'm reading again and we'll hear what the traps are. The first is fornication, the second wealth, and the third defilement of the sanctuary. He who escapes from this is caught by that, and he who is saved from that is caught by this. So essentially they're impossible to escape. One of those traps are gonna, is going to catch you. This passage describes the meaning behind the term Blial's dominion, Memshel Blial, which as we've already seen is used pretty frequently in Qumran text to describe the current period before the eschaton, before the end time. So according to the Damascus document, this is the period in which Blial is set free among the children of Israel. The traps that Blial sets are meant to cause sin and they seem impossible to escape. What are these traps? The passage continues to explain that these traps are actually halachic disputes. That is, they are disagreements regarding Jewish law that exist between community members and non-members. And specifically, they're disagreements regarding uh, Jewish law based on biblical proof texts, based on interpretation of biblical proof texts. So the traps that Blial sets trick unwitting non-members who mistake them for righteousness, quote-unquote, that is, that is, those outside the community think that the wrong side of the halachic dispute is actually the right side of the halachic dispute. It's actually correct. So this passage has two basic implications. First, Blial's traps cause sin. Second, they do so by causing a misunderstanding of the correct law, the law of the community, that people reach through their understanding of specific biblical proof texts, their interpretation of specific biblical verses. I'll give an example from the continuation of the Damascus document. So for example, the Damascus document explains that the trap of fornication is that people think that they can have two wives at the same time. Now, as we know, the practice of having multiple wives is not only found in early rabbinic Judaism, but it is throughout the Bible that men have multiple wives. So the Damascus document explains this is clearly not allowed. Why? Because it says in the beginning of Genesis of Bleshit, male and female, he created them in, in Genesis 1.27. That is, it's a one-to-one ratio, buddy. You get, there's one man and one wife. And the Damascus document also quotes, they went into the ark two by two, right? For, for Noah, so clearly nature is meant to be two by two. So the natural state of things is one man and one woman. Now, the writer of these words in the Damascus document has a problem right away, because what about David? Now, we may ask, what about the forefathers? What about Avraham and Yaakov? They had multiple wives. Yitzchak, to remind you, only had one wife. But that's before the Torah is given, so apparently that's not a problem for the writer of the Damascus document. But the writer of the Damascus document does have to explain King David, and King David is particularly revered by the Qumran community and frankly, by, you know, Judaism in general. So the Damascus document goes on to explain right away, right after saying that you're not allowed to have more than one wife, it explains right away that David had not read the sealed book of the Torah that was in the Ark, that was in the Alon. And the Damascus document continues, nevertheless, the deeds of David were all excellent, except for the murder murder of Uriah, and God forgave him for that. 
So David has an out because he hadn't read the sealed book of the Torah and God forgave him for the murder of Uriah and he's all set. So, you know, way to go, Damascus document. But back to our topic, the traps of Blial, and there are other examples that the Damascus document gives, all seem to revolve around different interpretations of the written law. So Blial here is almost a theological justification because on the one hand, Blial's existence explains why other people do not accept the community's interpretation of the law. And this is even though, in the community's view, their interpretation is so obviously correct. So why isn't everyone accepting it? Why isn't everyone doing it? Blial must have misled them. And it's also a nice explanation because it's a sort of kinder, gentler view of people who aren't members than what we saw in the community rule. So in the community rule, people who are not members actually belong to Blial's law. Here, people who aren't members, they're not actually Blial's minions. They're just misguided. And it would have been almost impossible for them to escape being misguided because Blial's traps are constructed to be almost impossible to escape. We can imagine that this would make it much easier for Qumran community members to interact with outsiders. And it also makes it easier to try and convert non-members to the community because they don't belong to some demonic lot from the beginning of time. They just need to have the truth explained to them. So we actually see a very different view of non-members in the Damascus document, even though, just like in the community rule, we're using Blial to define outsiders in some way. And this definition of non-members, as misled by Blial's traps, actually fits a declaration in another Qumran document, in another of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in 4Q Pesha of the Psalms, the number is 4Q171, which is a Qumran piece of biblical interpretation, specifically of the Psalms, hence the name, that the members of the community, in, in 4Q Pesha of the Psalms, it says that the members of the community who are called the community of the poor in the Pesha, Edate Evionim, will be saved from all the traps of Blia. So in other words, community members in particular are actually immune to the misleading of Blial regarding the interpretation of the law. So we still have Blial as a kind of dividing line between members and non-members. So now back to our introduction to the Damascus document explaining the traps of Blial. The passage after the one I read to you earlier actually implies that Israel has sinned through foolishness. But then Blial is brought in again. And I'm reading now from columns five and six of the Damascus document. For formally, Moshe and Aaron stood by the hand of the Prince of Lights, Sal Ha'urim, and Blial raised up Yachne and his brother in his plotting. Now, Yachne and his brother, that's a reference to Paro's magicians who opposed Moshe and Aaron in Exodus and Shemot 7, 18 to 8 to 13. Now, of course, in Exodus, these magicians aren't named, but we do have an apocryphal book called Yanis and Yambris about these magicians, where Yanis here would be Yachne, and Yambris here would simply be his brother. The Damascus document is simply calling him his brother without naming him. And so let me go back now and read from the beginning. For formerly, Moshe and Aaron stood by the hand of the Prince of Light, Selha Urim, and Blial raised up Yachne and his brother in his plotting when Israel was first saved. Okay, so you get what's happening here. In, in Jubilees, the angel Mastema was used to explain how Paro's magicians could do real magic. It was Mastema who made them able to actually do real magic in front of Paro. And here it's Blial. He raised up Yachna and his brother at the time to oppose Moshe and Aaron. 
But note that here, Blial is contrasted to an angel or prince of light. Okay, Moshe and Aaron stood by the hand of the prince of light, and Blial raised up Yachna and his brother. So why an angel? Why is, why is it Blial versus an angel? Probably because it's not fitting that God himself be opposed by Blial. And we're going to talk about that again when we talk about the war scroll. And then we continue as follows. I'm reading again. And at the time of the destruction of the land, the trespassers arose and led Israel astray. And these are the false leaders that lead people not to join the community, essentially. Those are the trespassers. And the land became desolate, for they spoke deviantly against the ordinances of God given through Moshe, and also against the anointed holy one, or his anointed holy one. And they prophesied falsely so as to cause Israel to turn away from God. And God recalled the covenant with the first ones. And he raised up from Aharon men of discernment and from Israel wise men. And he allowed them to hear. In other words, he opened their ears as, as it were to the correct law and way. Now those men of discernment that God raise, raises up are the community. Uh, and I'd like you to note the parallel here. Before we had Moshe and Aaron standing by the Prince of Lights, while Paro's magicians were empowered by Blial. Here, we have the trespassers leading Israel astray against God's commandments given by Moshe and against the anointed holy ones or his anointed holy one, and that's the high priest, i.e. the descendant of Aaron. So we have a clear parallel here, and it shouldn't be hard for us to fill it in. Because we just heard about what Blial does, he misleads people and makes them think they're being righteous and following the correct law when they're not. So just like Blial stood behind Paro's magicians and helped them mislead Paro against Moshe and Aharon, so Blial is standing behind the false leaders who are speaking against the law of Moshe and against the status of the correct priesthood from Aharon. And this may be a reflection of the Qumran belief that the Hasmoneans should not be high priests because the high priest should be a descendant of Tzadok. Now, it's very possible that that little scene between Moshe, Aharon, and Paro's magicians was inserted later because it actually reflects a kind of dualism and a contrast between Blial and the Prince of Lights, which doesn't really fit this section of the Damascus document. But it still provides a transition from the traps of Blial and the success of false leaders in fooling Israel with false prophecy. In other words, we had the traps of Blial, and now we have this nice transition, as it were, to saying, okay, it's the false leaders who are kind of putting those traps into effect. So now Blial's function shifts from justifying the foolishness of all the people who are not following the community's laws to explaining the success of evil leaders in misleading Israel. So then any leader who opposes the community is not just misled by Blial. The leader isn't misled. He's actually an emissary of Blial. He's a messenger of Blial. The leaders of other groups have, in fact, been literally demonized here. So what's the result of all this. It essentially shifts the guilt from non-members, who are just kind of unwitting dupes of Blial, to their leaders, who really do somehow belong to Blial. So the existence of Blial now explains why non-members don't join the community, while their evil leaders prosper. 
note that here, unlike the community rule, there's no lot of Blial. Blial here doesn't command humans. He just misleads them. And it's interesting that here we are actually getting closer to the later understanding of what Satan is supposed to do. But we'll see other developments as well that all end up informing later ideas of Satan or of a central Satanic figure. Note that also, Blial does not affect the community member. Being part of the community, or rather being righteous as the community defines it, is a kind of shield against Blial. So again, Blial does still form a kind of demarcation, a divining line between community members and non-members. But, but in the Damascus document, Blial has another role. He himself destroys evildoers. I know, surprise, right? Like, what the heck? I'm skipping ahead and reading now from column eight. And such is the judgment of all who entered his covenant, who will not hold firmly to these statutes. They will be visited unto destruction by the hand of Blial. So we're talking about members, those who entered the covenant, who did not keep the law, who will not hold firmly to these statutes. Okay, They didn't keep the law. They'll actually be punished by Blial. This isn't supposed to happen immediately. It's going to happen in the eschaton in the final battle. So perhaps this means that those of the community who die in the final battle and in the war scroll, there are losses among the children of light are the sinners among them. It's the sinners who are going to die and they're in that way going to be punished by Blia. In the continuation of this passage, these sinners are identified as those who did not separate from the people the way the Qumran community was supposed to. And the sinners are also connected to those who have been taken in by the lies of an evil leader. In other words, non-members. So they'll all be destroyed together. I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's so sweet. They'll all go together when they go. No, we're not thinking that. It's not so sweet. (laughs) So essentially, in this passage, members who do not keep the law are the same as non-members. And remember what we're reading here. We're reading a rule text. So this is a warning to new and existing members. Just because you're a member doesn't mean you don't have to fear Blial at all. If you go bad, Blial won't just mislead you. He will destroy you. Remember what you signed up for. So the eschatological destruction of all non-members and of straying members by Blial is an inevitable consequence of their rejection of community law. Uh, it's still strange, though, that Blial would do the destroying himself. I mean, in the community rule, these are his guys, right? So here is where we need to consider the influence of the Book of Jubilees on the writer of the Damascus document. When I introduced the Book of Jubilees originally several episodes ago, I noted that it was considered an authoritative and maybe even maybe even had an, uh, the status of a scriptural work by the Dead Sea community. And how do we know this? Because the Book of Jubilees is quoted in the Damascus document as authoritative. In fact, we can find considerable influence of Jubilees in the Damascus document in particular, as well as in the War Scroll, which we'll discuss in the next episode. And here's one of the places where we see that influence. The depiction of Blial as a punisher of evildoers may be the result of a harmonizing reading of Jubilees that combines the figures of Blial and Mastema into one. If Mastema were considered identical to Blial by the author of the Damascus document, the idea that Blial punishes people could come from the passage in Jubilees where Mastema describes himself as eventually punishing evildoers when he's asking to keep the Watcher's descendants to help him. 
So in Jubilees, Masema explains, I'm reading from Jubilees now, for they are meant for the purposes of destroying and misleading before my punishment because the evil of mankind is great. So perhaps Belial's role as punisher is a reflection of this influence. Or it may simply be a way of referring to the expected losses of members in of members in the final battle when the children of light fight the children of darkness who are led by Belial. So to sum up what we've read so far in the Damascus document, Belial in the Damascus document may in some way command false leaders, but he operates mainly by misleading Israel, by trapping them into sin, which he accomplishes by encouraging them to believe in the wrong legal biblical interpretations, thereby causing them to follow the incorrect law. So Belial's existence explains why the false leaders prosper and have followers and why the true quote-unquote, leaders of Israel, who are, of course, the leaders of the community, are not successful in convincing more people to follow the law of the community. And then, as we noted, surprisingly, Blial will destroy the evildoers himself in the eschaton, and that includes both non-members and members who don't follow community law. And that's all fine and good, but there's one more reference to Blial in the Damascus document that messes everything up. This reference is actually not in the introduction. It's within the rules themselves. I'm reading now from column 12. Each man whom the spirits of Blial rule and speaks apostasy, that is heresy, in accordance with the judgment of the necromancer and the medium, shall he be judged. The necromancer and medium here is a translation of Ha'ova Yidoni, who are punished with death in Leviticus in Vayikra 20.27. So this means that the speaker of apostasy is put to death. No one ever said that it's fun to be a member of the Qumran community. And each man who errs and profanes the Shabbat or the holy days shall not be put to death. Note, this is talking specifically about someone whom the spirits of Blial rule. It's not that everyone who profanes the Shabbat gets off. For he is to be guarded by human beings. And if he is healed of it, they shall guard him for seven years. Then he may enter the assembly. So this passage seems to address what happens if a person sins because the spirits of Blial rule him, each man whom the spirits of Blial rule. This goes against everything else we've read so far. First of all, this is the closest reference to something even approaching demonic possession that I've seen in Second Temple literature. As I've said before, in Jewish texts of the Second Temple period, as opposed to, say, what we might read in the Gospels. Demons can harm, they can cause disease, they can cause sin, but they don't completely take over a person and his or her actions. There's no suicidal swine here. So what's going on? We have spirits of Blial, and because of their rule, this person may speak apostasy, in which case he's put to death, or he might profane Shabbat or the Holy Days, in which case... He's put under some kind of house arrest. And if he's healed, quote unquote, he's on probation for seven years until he can rejoin the assembly. How can we understand these lines in the context of other references to Blial within the Damascus document? I'm going to present how I understand it, and I'm going to leave it up to you whether to accept or reject my explanation. So here goes. We've seen that in the Damascus document, Blial is behind the mistaken following of incorrect halacha of, halacha, of incorrect legal rulings. Here, the conflict between the community member 
and the laws of the community is also being attributed to the influence of spirits of Leah. But the two, we have two different punishments here and two different transgressions that result from the influence of Leah here. The first, speaking apostasy, probably refers to speaking publicly against the community's laws or the community's leaders. And in fact, the passage here uses the same term, Dibel Sarah, for speaking apostasy, as it used in the passage we read about the trespassers. That's what the trespassers, the false leaders do when they speak against the, quote, commandments of God through Moshe and through his anointed one. So apparently that's what Dibel Sarah means. It means speaking against the laws and leaders of the community. If a member actually speaks against the community and its laws, this would confirm that the member is really in the enemy camp. That is, that member's in the same group as those who were earlier accused of misleading Israel. So in that case, the community judges this criticizing member as actually complicit in demonic activity. And because of that, he shares the fate of the necromancers who are punished with death in Leviticus in Baikra 20.27. But if the member strays from the rules of Shabbat and the holidays because of Leal's spirits, and this would be understandable for someone who's a member of the community, but has become convinced that, in fact, the temple's lunis solar calendar is the correct one and not the solar calendar kept by the community. So in that case, the person would keep different holiday dates than the rest of the community. And although Shabbat would be the same, this may be referred to the bringing of holiday sacrifices on Shabbat, which is something that the Qumran calendar avoids, but say the rabbinic calendar does not. So if a person has become misled by Blial, as it were, and therefore thinks that the calendar, which he should recognize as right, is actually, and he thinks falsely, of course, that it's actually wrong. And so he's keeping different holidays and he may be bringing sacrifices on the Shabbat for the holidays that would count as desecrating holidays and Shabbat according to community rules. So it may be that here, the straying that is caused as it were by Belial's spirit is connected to a different calculation of the calendar proposed by, that has been proposed by someone outside the community. So in that case, there's still hope for redemption for this person from the community's point of view. If he is cured, quote unquote, that is, he realizes the error of his ways, he may be forgiven. And this is actually a pretty light punishment compared to the biblical punishment for desecrating the Shabbat, which is death, just to remind you. But the lenient punishment may be a recognition of just how hard it is to stand firm against the temptation of a convincing alternative calculation of the calendar especially when it's further enabled, of course, by spirits of Blial, quote unquote. <laughs> by the way, the verb that's used for s- the sinning that this influenced person does when desecrating the Shabbat is yit'eh, to stray or to make a mistake. This verb, ta'a, also appears in reference to the trespassers who lead Israel astray in, in 520. That's what they cause Israel to do. They cause error on the part of Israel. So it may indicate that this member's sin is not only mistaken, but the result of misleading activity on the part of outside leaders. So it's clearly caused by Blial, who, as we remember, uses evil leaders as his emissaries and is actually the cause of the mistaken understanding of the Torah. So what have we seen? 
We've seen that in the Damascus document, non-members are considered vulnerable to the misleading influence of Blial and of his evil emissaries, the false leaders. This influence leads them to misinterpret the law. Despite the fact that members are supposed to be immune to this influence, we have one rule which actually proposes a more lenient punishment for a member who is assumed to be under the influence of the spirits of Blial. And you just heard my interpretation that this influence is actually that of outside leaders and ideas. What's interesting here is that while the Damascus document still uses Blial to distinguish between members and outsiders, it does it in a much more benevolent way than the community rule. Just to remind you, the community rule defined all outsiders as children of Blial, unless they joined the sect, of course. The Damascus document essentially pities outsiders for being misled by Blial. And we can imagine, again, how much easier it would be for someone who is living according to the Damascus document to deal easily with outsiders. So here, Blial is being used to explain why everyone doesn't realize that the community's interpretation is in fact the correct one, quote-unquote, but in a way that still allows a certain openness and even kind feelings toward people who do not belong to the community. So we see that there are lots of ways of using demons to explain sin, and they don't all need to be particularly harsh, interestingly enough. They can actually be a way of being a little kinder towards outsiders. In the next episode, I am going to discuss Blial in the War Scroll, and we'll see how he functions in the description of the epic battle or battles between the children of light and the children of darkness. So that's a wrap. Thanks again for joining me. Please continue to leave your comments and questions on my blog at understandingsin.com. And I look forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.